Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Thoughts. I'm Tinka, and today Jonah and I speak with Jack Lyons, a professor and lecturer at our very own University of Glasgow. We talk about his work on theories of knowledge, ranging across epistemology and philosophy of mind. So here are some thoughts on truth and evidence. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Jack, for being here on the podcast. And just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and maybe your main areas of interest in philosophy? Uh, yeah, uh, so thanks for having me. It's nice to talk with you. Um, so I'm actually kind of a recent transplant to Glasgow. I got here about 10 minutes before the pandemic came. I got here at the very beginning of the year. So I had, you know, two months of rain and dark and then lockdown. So, uh, you know, I spent most of my career in the in the United States uh, where I was trained. Most of my work in philosophy is in uh, epistemology, which is a theory of knowledge, which I think we're going to be talking talking about uh, a lot today, uh, and then also a lot of philosophy of mind, including uh, things about like cognitive architecture and the nature of mental representation, uh, stuff like that, that I think we'll probably be talking less about today, but, uh, you know, maybe maybe another time. Yeah, you said um, you, you're you telling us you recently attended an epistemology conference, which we're going to be talking a bit about today. Was there like a general theme or um, kind of concept that was the main topic of the conference at all, or, or like, what did you take away specifically from it? There was supposed to be a main theme. One thing that I've taken away from, you know, uh, from a couple of conferences uh, in the last couple of weeks is a renewed interest in a particular argument, the the, the new evil demon uh, argument uh, against reliabilism, which I can where I can talk about it. I can put it in a better context in a little bit if if we can um, if you can hold off. I can come back to that. Mm -hmm. So you were saying that your interests as of right now are kind of a bit more on epistemology. Is is that right? What, what kinds of things are you interested in at the moment? Yeah, that's right. So uh, a kind of a, a combination of epistemology and philosophy of mind and a lot of uh, work at the intersection, those two. So in epistemology, I'm mostly interested in what makes a belief reasonable or justified. I'll usually say justified. Other people say reasonable. Um, um, and uh, and there are other people who focus on knowledge rather than justification, uh, but I'm kind of more interested uh, in, in justification. Um, and... Um, and I think that the, 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 the basic idea that everybody will sign on to in some form is the idea that a justified belief is one that's likely to be true, one that's probably true. Um, but, then, um, but then how people understand that is going to be really, really, really different uh, depending on how they understand um, probably true or likely to be true. So, so there are kind of two distinctions that arise here. And the first one, is uh, is between objective and subjective probability, right? So is it so? Does it uh, uh, so? The idea of subjective probability is you know well it's it's you know true from my perspective or likely to be true from my perspective. And there's a worry that that kind of subjective probability just collapses into belief, right? So um, so belief is justified just in case you think it's likely to be true, but that's can't, that can't be right, right? I mean, it can't be that the way to form beliefs is to just do whatever you think is right, 
right? I mean, we have there have to be better and worse ways of reasoning. So I prefer an objective understanding of probability. That raises another kind of question or problem. So um, the, the, the easiest way to think of a belief being likely to be true is in, is in terms of a kind of a reliableist epistemology, right? So a reliableist epistemology, and this is my view, is that a belief is justified just in case it's the result of, of a cognitive process uh, that has a high proportion of true to false beliefs. Okay, so, so the, the reliableist view is that a belief is uh, justified just in case it's formed uh, by a process that, uh, um, or something like that, I'll come back to that, uh, that has a high proportion of true-to-false beliefs. Now, there's one kind of famous objection to this that I've written about in the past, and actually that's kind of come up in, recent, uh, in, in a couple of recent conferences that I've been to. Uh, so I'm kind of interested in, in, in revisiting this. The objection is known as the new evil demon problem. And so the, the thought experiment is this, right? So su suppose you were to have your brain uh, taken out of your head in your sleep and put in a nutrient vat and stimulated. You're probably familiar with this kind of skeptical scenario, right? You're uh, put in a matrix-type environment or you're, uh, you know, you're, you're uh, subjected to the, the whims of a Cartesian demon uh, who starts implanting all these experiences in you. And, and, and intuitively... Uh, so we're told, the, uh, the, the, the person who's in this position continues to be justified. If this were to happen to you and you were to have the same experiences uh, that you're having now, then what you should do is continue to believe as you're doing, right? So if you continue to believe as you are believing, uh, then you would be justified in those beliefs, right? So that's the intuition. The intuition is that the victim of a Cartesian demon is justified in their beliefs. But the problem is that those beliefs by construction, are very unlikely to be true. In fact, they're all false, right? Um, and so that's a problem for a generally reliableist epistemology. And so it raises this interesting question, right? What is then the connection between truth and justification? I mean, so on the one hand, it seems pretty clear that a justified belief is one that's likely to be true. On the other hand, this kind of objection is aimed to show that it can't be that very simple kind of uh, truth connection. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I kind of wondered a bit whether, does the new evil demon problem really challenge the separation between truth and justification? Uh, because that thought experiment is very skeptical and it's probably not true, if you see what I mean. So it's like we're kind of not believing it because it doesn't seem likely to be true. Yeah, I mean, so some areas of philosophy are really rife with these kinds of crazy sci-fi type, uh, you know, scenarios. And epistemology is one of them. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you if you're gonna if you're gonna do epistemology, right, you gotta uh, you gotta be okay with these kinds of thought experiments. One of the things that I think is kind of interesting about this, and so I want to try to revisit, I mean, I've written about this uh, in the past, but I think that, I mean, in, in the last week, I've seen a couple of different people, like actually like three different people, kind of converging on a view that I endorsed 10 years ago. And so I want to, I want to come back to this. The idea is this, right? So suppose, right, I mean, if we, if we understand the, if we understand the counterexample in one way, um, uh, then it looks like it's not a, uh, an objection to reliabilism for one reason. If we understand it in a different way, we see that it's not an objection for a different reason. So here's, here's the first way. So we can think of the person as me, 
right? So here I am, I've been forming beliefs using perception and memory and inference and these kinds of testimony, like the very standard uh, kinds of ways of forming beliefs. Then suddenly I get my uh, brain ripped out and stuck in a vat. I don't notice the difference. Now all my beliefs are false. But I've been doing it right for 50 some years and now, uh, and now I'm getting it all wrong. So in some sense, the processes that I'm using are actually reliable in some sense, right? I mean, I'm still, I'm still batting 900. Um, does that mean anything over here? Uh, that's an American, I'm talking American baseball. I don't know any British sports. Um, but do you see what I mean, right? I mean, so still my track record is overwhelmingly good. And so if you take some agent who's anchored to some world, right? I mean, so maybe it's because they've spent time in that world. Maybe because this is the world in which their ancestors evolved. Uh, maybe because this is the world that they are designed to inhabit or whatever, right? So the various ways that you could understand anchoring, right? So if you're thinking of an agent who's anchored in some world, then it's not obvious that, they're, uh, that, they're, that the processes that they're using are really unreliable. Right, because they're reliable in the in the anchored environment, uh, and then not reliable in the vat. So, so I think that that if you allow for this idea of anchoring, uh, then there are ways for the reliableist to say, no, my theory doesn't have the counterintuitive result because my theory doesn't require that it be reliable right this second. It requires that it be reliable overall, and that's going to include the anchoring environment. On the other hand, that you think of unanchored victims of the demon or the mad neuroscientist or whatever. Well, then there's a there's a different problem, and it's a problem of alien cognizers. So take memory, right? So I rely on memory, and how do I know that I'm remembering rather than imagining? Well, there's this kind of ineffable feeling associated with remembering. It seems to me that the Battle of Hastings was in 1066, right? I mean, like, when I think about the Battle of Hastings was in 1066. There's this kind of really vague, really slippery, hard to get your hands on feeling that this is a memory and not just a supposition. And I know what memories feel like for me, but I don't know what memories feel like for Tralfamadorians, right? Or whatever, right? I mean, so, you know, uh, aliens, uh, like different kinds of creatures. So again, sorry about the science fiction uh, counterfactuals, right? But, uh, right, I mean, so different kinds of creatures uh, might be constructed in such a way that memories feel just really very different for them. So there's a way that I'm supposed to form beliefs, that is, when I've got that particular feeling, then I should treat it as a memory rather than a supposition. But that very same feeling might in some other creature be, uh, be a sign that it's a supposition rather than a memory, right? I mean, this is what memories feel like for us. It's not what memories have to feel like. Uh, so, you know, you could do it in terms of like uh, uh, color inversion, right? So this uh, thing in my hand uh, looks a certain way and I, and I conclude that it's orange. Somebody else might be constructed in such a way that when they have that same visual experience, they should think that it's uh, green, right? So if you're thinking of the victim of an evil demon scenario as being unanchored, right? You're thinking just, here's an experience. How should you respond to that experience? I think, well, I mean, it's not clear that, the, that, the, that an unanchored uh, victim should form beliefs the way that I do just because it's the way I do it, right? I mean, maybe they should conclude that the thing's green. Maybe they should conclude that it's orange. Um, uh, it's not clear that there is any right answer about what the unanchored demon worlder should believe. 
what it's right for them to believe. If there is an answer, it should maybe be that they shouldn't believe anything because none of their beliefs are reliably connected to truth, right? So the, and so this is just you know just the, the, the very basic idea, right? Is that um, if the victim is anchored, then it's not really a problem for reliabilism because reliabilism has the means to say that the are still reliably formed in the relevant sense of reliably formed. If the victim is an unanchored agent then it's no longer counterintuitive to say that because their beliefs are unreliably formed, they're unjustified. So again, that's a very long way of coming back to that uh, idea about a truth connection, about uh, a justified belief being one that's likely to be true, where likely is given this objective rather than subjective unpacking. Is the kind of the reliabist kind of counter in the first case is to say, well, so its processes are reliable, like in the environment that the subject is anchored in, and that's kind of the way to kind of circumvent it. Yeah, that's the idea. I was just going to counter that and say maybe the opposite view is that you know if you're if you're unanchored to truth, you're unanchored to objective truth. But if I'm a brain in a vat, then my subjective experience is still the same. So it's still giving the same phenomenological inputs and outputs. You know, so I know if uh, ordered something online, for example, in a simulation, then I could still have knowledge that it was going to arrive a few days later, even if that entailed a different thing on an objective level, if that was just kind of code or, or something like that. On a phenomenological level, it's still, I'm still having the same experiences and maybe that's, maybe it's just a different kind of anchoring. I think it, I think in that kind of case it would be. I mean, so I think that there are different routes that you might go about these kinds of things, right? I mean, so so, so there's a, a kind of a metaphysical solution to these kinds of worries where you say, oh well, actually in those cases your beliefs are true, right? I mean, that is that your beliefs become about what's going to happen, right? I mean, so you you form these expectations, and then those expectations are actually realized, and so your you know your your beliefs were true. And and when you when you describe the the, the situation in that way, I, I could kind of put myself into that headspace, right? And think, yeah, okay, there's a sense in which you are forming beliefs reliably, uh, because you know you expect that you're going to get a thing, and you in some sense do, <laughs> right? And then, but then in some sense you didn't, right? Because there was no Amazon, and there was no computer that you you know, except nothing came in the post because there isn't any post, right? I mean, so when I'm looking at these kinds of scenarios, I'm assuming, uh, as my opponent does, that these beliefs have their ordinary contents. Otherwise, it's not very interesting. Uh, there's a different way of kind of, of trying to respond to this, where you say, you know, those beliefs just don't have the contents that you thought they had, that your beliefs are not about real chairs and rocks and packages from Amazon. They're about virtual chairs and rocks and packages from Amazon. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that's like a, maybe a more like a, maybe a kind of a pragmatic approach to take is to say maybe it doesn't really matter. I mean, I guess maybe that's what you're talking about in the, in the maybe the process-based epistemology lens is that it's like the, the process is still justified because it's still just as useful in terms of my day-to-day -day life. Would that be a good way of capturing the... I mean, for example, if you, if you were put into the brain in the VAT situation and you were trying to use the same epistemological processes but they had completely different consequences 
maybe that would be a different conversation and maybe those processes would no longer be justifiable to use. But if they if they have the same exact consequences in two different underlying scenarios, A, where we're in the real world or B, where we're in a simulation, I guess maybe uh, the there's maybe the idea that it doesn't necessarily matter that much if, if it looks like it's the same and it's exactly the same usefulness to us. Right. That's a way to go. I mean, it's not the way that I go uh, because I think that epistemic justification, uh, that is that kind of justification that's relevant to knowledge, is different from say, pragmatic justification. So I think it's going to be very closely connected to truth rather than to good consequence. So, you know, your friend, uh, you know, your friend says that they didn't commit this crime, right? I mean, well, okay, so then uh, maybe, maybe you have a moral obligation to believe your friend, but you might have an epistemic obligation, depending on the evidence, right, to think that, no, actually, they really did commit the crime. Uh, and then, you know, depending, you know, for, for various reasons, it might be in your interest to believe that they did, uh, might be in your interest to believe that they didn't. And so there are going to be moral, epistemological and pragmatic reasons for belief. And I think that the best, the easiest way anyway, to keep the pragmatic and the epistemic distinct is to not endorse a pragmatic uh, view about epistemic goodness, right? So what makes a belief justified is not the consequences, but whether it's likely to be true. So I, I want to say, so, you know, you've got these anchored, you know, if, if an agent is anchored, that, that explains our intuitive sense that the beliefs are justified. Because, you know, they, they, they are, for the most part, still doing it right. Only for this last little bit have they been doing it wrong. Maybe after they've been in the vat for a long time, right? I mean, they lose that anchoring. And now, right? I mean, so, you know, you spent five years in the real world and then 20 years in the vat. Well, now I think those processes are unreliable, right? I mean, now you've gotten things wrong much more than you've gotten them right. And even if it's pragmatic, I want to say, no, in that case, it becomes less counterintuitive to say that the beliefs are unjustified. So that's kind of interesting because then it becomes dependent on this notion of anchoring and of how long you've been anchored where. Mm -hmm. um, so do you feel like we've kind of talked about this um, new evil demon problem? Do you feel like reliabilism succeeds in dealing with this problem? Yeah, I think it does. And I think one of the things that I like is that the reliabilism is a big general kind of framework, right? And then you can fill it out in different ways and you can understand anchoring in different ways. And so I understand anchoring in terms of your personal track record. But I've got friends who understand anchoring in terms of evolutionary history, right? And so I kind of like that view, but it's not quite my view, right? So, and, and so I think that, you know, the, the, the general framework is, is one that allows for lots of different variations. And then you can have variations about whether anchoring is forever, right? I mean, so I think there are certain views according to which anchoring is forever, right? So uh, there's, there's one epistemologist, you don't, uh, I think he's dead. That would explain why you don't hear from him anymore. Uh, who's, uh, you know, very religious. And so he's like very serious about God designed us. And so on that kind of view, right, I mean, if your anchoring is uh, a function of God's purposes for you, then that's something that you're never going to lose. Um, even though you've been in the vat, you know, I mean, you've been in the vat all your life, but God designed you for this environment or for Eden or for heaven or whatever it was, right? You know, uh, then you're going to remain justified all the time. 
on the more naturalistic views, uh, right, where, you know, uh, it's, it's evolutionary history or a combination of evolutionary history and learning processes, uh, then you're probably going to lose anchoring. You're going to lose your anchor as you spend more time in the vat. And as those neural processes cease to be explained by the objective mechanisms that produce truth in the in the real world and are more and more as time goes by explained by just uh, regular old homeostatic mechanisms uh, in response to electrical stimulation of the brain uh, so that like you can't have rocks doing any explanatory work uh, in why these things are maintained when you've got an environment that doesn't contain any rocks basically this is a long way of saying there's um, there are a lot of different options. And, this is, and that's what I think is kind of interesting about this, right? So you've got this general type of framework. You've got this general reliabilist framework. Within that, you've got uh, one response to the new evil demon is this kind of anchoring response, which uh, looks like it may be making a bit of a comeback. And then there are various different ways that you might try to uh, articulate the anchoring. Some ways are going to be more friendly to uh, the idea that Victims are justified. Some of them are going to be more defiant and say, no, the victims are unjustified. Um, um, and, uh, you know, so I think there's room for, uh, you know, kind of a vigorous, uh, healthy debate about these things now. A bit before uh, the interview, we talked about evidence-based epistemology as well, as opposed to kind of the more process-based. I mean, could you talk a bit about what that is and how it survives or doesn't survive with the new evil demon? You know, how does it survive in an unanchored environment? So come back to the basic idea that a justified belief is one that's likely to be true. So what I've been talking about so far is subjective versus objective uh, understandings of likely to be true and trying to fend off objections to the objective likeliness view. So I say the, the way we need to understand this is in terms of an objective truth connection. Uh, and then there's the new evil demon problem, and I've been explaining why you know there are interesting solutions on the horizon uh, to this problem. Um, but then there's another uh, sort of branch point, right? So you can have a subjective or objective theory about what the relevant probability or likeliness is. But then you can also have a debate about what it's likely conditional, right? And so there are two views about this. One is the evidence view and one is the process view, right? So let's suppose we, we grant that the kind of probability has to be objective. So then the question is, um, so my belief that there's an orange in my hand, um, is, that, is that likely to be true? Well, I mean, in some sense, that's a really, I mean, like, no, right? I almost never have an orange in my hand, right? I mean, so if it's just, if you're just talking, you know, about just sort of bare probabilities, the answer is no. But obviously, that's irrelevant and uninteresting. Um, that is, is it likely to be true given X. And now we kind of decide what X is. And there are two views about what X is. Uh, one is, uh, is it likely given my current evidence? And that's a pretty natural view. The other is, is it likely given the causal process by which I came to this belief? 
That's the way I want to go. So I want to I want to endorse a process kind of answer about what it is, how how we're going to understand these likelinesses, these probabilities, right? So uh, so we want we want a view that connects justification to truth. But how does it do it? Well, it connects it to truth conditional on that belief being the output of a particular kind of process. So I think there are two reasons to go for the process view over the evidence view. So what is evidence, first of all? Well, evidence is what it is that you're basing a belief on. Uh, and then there's a whole literature, of course, on, on what, it, what the basing relation is and what is it to base a belief on. Uh, but the obvious kind of cases are things as, well, you know, I believe that you're going to meet me at noon because you said that you're going to meet me at noon. Right. I mean, and so it's it's your having said that you're going to meet me at noon that I'm basing my belief on. So in the case of inference, right, you said that P, therefore P, right, that's a kind of basing. And when we think about evidence, when we think about the conditional probability of something's being true, given that it's based on this evidence, all we're looking at is the evidence that is the basis for the belief and then the belief itself. The proposition, right? So, um, so how are we to understand, say, perceptual justification? Uh, well, the way everybody understands it is in terms of sense experiences, right? So, I'm having a certain kind of experience, um, and I base my belief that there's an orange in my on that sensory experience, right? A visual experience, and then in this case, I also have a sort of a tactile experience because uh, it's in my hand. But if it were your hand, it would only be a visual. Uh, experience, right? For me. So I think there are actually pretty serious problems uh, with understanding a lot of beliefs on this basis. So I think introspection, intuition, perception, and memory, uh, by perception I mean sense perception and memory, um, all are not plausibly understood in evidentialist terms. So I've worked uh, pretty extensively on perception in this case, but, but think about introspection, right? So I believe that grass is green. So I have the belief that grass is green. And I know that I have the belief that grass is green, right? That's what introspection is, is it's looking inside and attributing mental states to ourselves. So my belief that grass is green is, I don't know, perceptual or it's memory or something like that. But my belief that I believe that grass is green is introspection. Um, so what is the evidence for my belief that I believe that grass is green? Right? So in the case of memory, so I talked about memory a minute ago about, you know, so I believe that the Battle of Hastings is in 1066. And the evidence people say, well, yeah, so what happens is I have this seeming to remember. I don't believe in seemings to remember, but really in the relevant sense, but um, but what do, what do we say about introspection? Well, do we say that in addition to my belief that grass is green, uh, there's also a seeming, right? I, do, I, do I base my belief that I believe that grass is green on a seeming to believe that grass is green? That doesn't seem right. Do I base it on the belief that grass is green? I mean, so, so intuitively what it seems is happening in the case of introspection is that I believe that grass is green. And then I just have access to the fact that I believe that grass is green. I think if you want to say that my introspective belief is based on a belief, um, is based on anything, it would be based on the belief itself, right? So the belief itself, my belief that grass is green, is just sort of somehow directly present to the mind. But is it evidence? So here's a weird thing, right? Because what is my belief that grass is green evidence for? 
Well, it's evidence for the proposition that something is green. It's evidence for the proposition that grass is not yellow. It's not evidence for the proposition that Jack believes something, right? I mean, how could it be, right? I mean, right from grass is green, it doesn't begin to follow that Jack believes that grass is green. And so that belief doesn't seem to be evidence for the introspective belief about which is the subject matter. <laughs> okay, so I realize that's all really like, you know, oh my God, that's so philosophy talk-ish, right? But, but I think, I mean, it looked from your faces like you're following me and you're with me on this, right? So right, there are things that you can say, but I think that's a kind of an initial reason to think that that the evidentialist view just isn't going to work. On the other hand, right, I mean, the, the view that I like, uh, introspection is a reliable process. And, uh, and so we've got a pretty easy uh, account of uh, introspection. And, and, and actually, I think we can say, well, introspection is reliable under certain conditions and for certain kinds of beliefs, and it's unreliable in other conditions, right? I mean, and so we've got all these implicit biases, like we're learning that we have all these unconscious implicit biases, and we don't know about them except that we read about them in the psychology journals. In those sorts of cases, in those, under those parameters, in those contexts, introspection is unreliable. And so introspection uh, is not to be trusted in those kinds of contexts. In the case of perception, take just the visual process, that there's an orange in my hand. So this, the standard view, the view that everybody except me kind of uh, endorses, is that what happens is you've got a visual experience, and then your belief that there's an orange in your hand is based on that visual experience. And I think that there's a bunch wrong with that. But part of what I think is wrong with that, that I think is kind of interestingly wrong with that, is that it seems to be empirically implausible. So the basing relation is, by most accounts, a, a sort of a causal or counterfactual or explanatory relation, right? So that is, to say that my belief is based on an experience is to say that that experience causes or, um, or explains my having the belief. But it turns out if you look at the empirical literature in cognitive psychology and in neuroscience, um, you see that, uh, that this is really kind of unlikely to be true, right? That is that visual categorization uh, happens independently of and faster than uh, conscious experience. Uh, so the experience comes later. And this is actually also consistent with all the theories that we have of consciousness. So our, our, our best theories of consciousness are theories like a global workspace theory, where first you have this representation, uh, so you have a perceptual representation, and then that representation is made available globally, right? It's globally broadcast. So that's one theory about consciousness. But on that theory, right, you've got the categorization, right? I categorize this as an orange. Uh, and then that categorization gets made conscious. On a higher order thought theory of consciousness, right, you've got, uh, right, a conscious representation is one that is represented. So I've, I, I represent this as an orange, and then I represent myself as representing that as an orange. And, and it's that second representation, that meta-representation, the higher order representation, that makes that first order representation conscious. But again, that's a theory on which consciousness postdates the perceptual belief. 
Then if you look at the, if you look at the neuroscience, uh, you'll see that visual categorization happens really fast. Visual categorization happens in 120 milliseconds after stimulus onset. So I can know within 120 milliseconds uh, whether something is an animal or a vehicle, for instance. It takes considerably longer to know, it takes considerably longer uh, for consciousness. So there are different stories about it. Uh, on some views, it happens at 200 milliseconds. On some views, at like 300 milliseconds. Uh, so, you know, uh, there, there are different theories about what is the neural marker for consciousness and when it happens. But on all the views that are out there, the, the neural marker for consciousness uh, is found after visual categorization. So I think it's just an interesting fact that, right, I mean, it's, it's part of our intuitive understanding of the mind. It's part of our folk psychology, if you will, uh, that perceptual belief is based on perceptual experiences. But it looks like, I mean, it, that, that's, that's something that has to be subjected to empirical scrutiny, and, it, and, the, uh, and, you know, and the empirical data seem uh, not to support it. I guess, sorry, did you want to jump in, Tinker? I was just going to say that some, that sounds crazy. That's, an, that's a crazy fact. Uh, yeah. But yeah, what did you want to say, Jonah? I guess on the subject of science, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about because obviously that's something that values evidence, you know, most highly, but then it is kind of also talked about as something that is a process. And I guess... It's something that is like evidence-based and process-based in a way that doesn't seem mutually exclusive. I'll give you another uh, example. And again, this draws a bit from cognitive psychology. So Tinka, I think you're right. I mean, I think this is crazy. But like so much of what we learn in the mind and brain sciences is crazy. I mean, I think that the lesson to draw from the mind and brain sciences is don't trust uh, don't trust your you know, common sense about what's actually going on in, in your skull. Mm -hmm. Maybe you didn't mean crazy in that kind of way, but we can, we can talk more if you want. But um, okay, so here's a here's a kind of a, a, an example that I like to use to uh, to try to distinguish processes from evidence. So you're given a set of sentences and asked to say whether the are whether the sentences constitute a valid argument. Right. So I take it you guys you know you know what a valid argument is. A valid argument is one where uh, the the truth of the premises would logically guarantee the truth of the conclusion. Uh, where it's you know logically impossible for the uh, premises to be true and the conclusion false at the same time, right? So what the evidentialist will say is that if you're given an instance of modus ponens, uh, that is, if P then Q, P therefore Q, that's valid. It's always valid. It's always going to work, right? This is the cool thing about logic. It always works. So if you're given an instance of modus ponens, then uh, concluding that that's valid uh, is always the right response to that. If you're given an instance of affirming the consequent, if P then Q, Q therefore P, that's an invalid form, right? That's affirming the consequent. Uh, and so what the, what, the, what the evidentialist is going to say is that affirming the consequent is always wrong and modus ponens is always right. And I think that's a really intuitively plausible thing to say. But suppose that the cognitive psychologists are right and that the way that we often reason about these things is by really quickly and unconsciously constructing a mental model. Suppose I base my belief that 
P on the beliefs that if P then Q and Q. So the evidentialist is going to say, no, that's a bad, that's bad. That evidence doesn't support P, right? So if P then Q, Q, that's my evidence. On the basis of that evidence, I believe P. That's affirming the consequent. It's invalid. That evidence does not support that conclusion, right? And so it looks like, so the evidentialist will say, you are never justified in believing P on the basis of that evidence, because that's an invalid inference. What I want to say is that whether that inference is justified or not, and I know this is going to initially sound really kind of counterintuitive, because what I'm about to say is that it's sometimes okay to commit logical fallacies, right? That is, that it's sometimes justified to commit logical fallacies. And this is a way of kind of drawing the contrast between a process theory and an evidence theory, right? So suppose that what we do when we're reasoning intuitively, and there's a, there's a whole cognitive psychology literature on this. The estimate is that 80% of the time we're using these unconscious heuristics. Um, so here's one, and this is a kind of a standard-ish view, and here's a kind of a toy version of the standard-ish view. So what we do when we are confronted with an argument is we quickly and unconsciously form a mental model. I mean, try to imagine a case where the premises are true, and then try to imagine consistent with that a case where the conclusion is false. And if we can, then or if we can consistently imagine the premises to be true and the conclusion false, then we conclude that the argument is invalid, which it is. But if we can't, after, you know, 10, 20 milliseconds or however long it takes, right? I mean, after, right, if we can't think of a, a scenario where the premises are true and the conclusion falls after a little bit, we can con we conclude that the argument is valid. So that's, that's a, a, like Philip Johnson Laird has this mental models view about human inference and says, yeah, yeah that's basically kind of what we do. So what I want to say is that if that's the process that we use, then that process is either reliable or it's not reliable. And whether it's reliable is going to depend on various parameters, like how long am I spending thinking of counterexamples? How clever am I at thinking of counterexamples? Uh, and so on. Right? Those things are going to matter. What's not going to matter is whether this particular instance was an instance of modus ponens, which is valid, or an instance of affirming the consequent, which is invalid. Right? And so all the results of that process should have the same probability of truth in the relevant sense. Right, All of the results of that process are going to count as reliable or unreliable depending on how reliable that process is. But it's not going to be a function of whether the particular input to that process was an instance of modus ponens or an instance of affirming the consequent. Because the process isn't sensitive to that. Right, the process is one where you just construct uh, you construct models of the premises and then try to construct a model of the falsity of the conclusion. And so, if that's a reliable process, it's a it, I mean, it could be a reliable process without being perfectly reliable. And so, it might once in a great while let an instance of affirming the consequent through. Right, it might once in a while have you say valid to an inference that's in fact invalid. And when you make those mistakes, I say, what we should say about the justificatory status of that belief is that it's justified. 
right? We should say that that's a reasonable thing for you to think, even though it happens to be wrong. We're committed to the idea that you can have, you know, justified but false beliefs, all right? This seems to be that same kind of thing. And so an evidence-based theory says, and I think this sounds really plausible initially, right? An evidence-based theory says modus ponens is always good, affirming the consequence is always bad. A process theory says, well, if you're using the same process to do modus ponens as you are to do affirming the consequence, and it's a really reliable process and you almost never get it wrong, then you're justified even in those cases where you do get it wrong, and so it is possible for affirming the consequent to be justified. And so I am defending uh, the rationality of uh, you know, logical fallacies. So I guess that kind of leads me to wonder what kind of processes are you allowed to use within reliabilism to get to your answers? Great question. It's a really, really complicated answer. Um, no, unfortunately, like I've got, I've got a paper on this, but it's a really long paper and it draws on a bunch of uh, empirical psychology and uh, a bunch of philosophy of mind. I mean, I think that's a, an issue that the process theorist has to has to face, right? I mean, that is, right? I mean, I think you're right, right? We have to have we have to have a good answer to the question. Come back to the example of the orange, right? Is this an instance of vision? Is this an instance of vision of orange things? Is this an instance of fruit identification? Is it an instance of, you know, uh, um, true belief formed on May 25th at 12.01 p.m., right? I mean, like, depending on how you categorize it, the, I mean, those are all going to have different reliability values. So you have to have a theory about that. I think the same kind of thing is true in the evidence case. I think similar problems are going to arise for evidence views. So. I say, um, myuk is a citation, is a cetacean. All cetaceans are mammals. Therefore, myuk is a mammal, right? Uh, so we can classify it. We can think of the evidence as, you know, oh, well, it's just an instance of universal modus ponens. But we can also think of it in terms of the specific proposition. You know, I mean, so I think, uh, I think that similar problems are going to arise for an evidentialist view. So it seems that process-based epistemology kind of seems stronger than evidence-based epistemology. But when we look at science in the way that we currently understand it, it seems to kind of draw from both. So I think in the past hour, we've kind of said that uh, process-based epistemology seems to be stronger. So then what does that say about the credibility of science? Because it kind of uses both. Should we be worried about, you know, these beliefs that we have based on science or should we just leave them alone? Oh, excellent question. So you'll have noticed that I'm a fan of science. Um, and if you look at the philosophy of science, the philosophy of science is very much evidentialist. Uh, right? I mean, that is, the philosophy of science is all about how evidence, understood as a set of propositions, supports theories or hypotheses, understood either as a set of propositions or as a model or something like that. And so I think, uh, I mean, I think that 
the relationship between philosophy of science and epistemology is really complicated. Again, that's one of these complicated things um, and, and not straightforward, right? I mean, so I think that when we're thinking about science, we need to be thinking in this very abstract way about evidence. And so we want to say, okay, what is the evidence for uh, the theory of evolution? Right, and the evidence is going to contain all kinds of things about biogeography and about genetic similarity and you know stuff like about reproduction rates and, and things like that. Any particular individual is going to have less than all of that evidence at their disposal, right? And so, how justified am I in believing that theory? Is a different question from how justified is that theory. Right. Um, and so uh, in, in that way, I think that these are separate type questions. Uh, and so one of the things that I want to do with the emphasis on process theories in epistemology over evidence theories in epistemology is to kind of separate epistemology from philosophy of science in that way. Right. That is, when we try to understand the conditions under which a particular individual is justified, we're not going to make progress in that by assimilating individuals and their epistemic status to the philosophy of science and the relation between theory and evidence. Because the relation between theory and evidence is this apsychological thing. What the, whether the evidence supports the theory or not has nothing to do with the psychology of anybody. These are mind-independent facts. And I think whether we are justified in our beliefs and how justified we are, are mind-dependent facts. Uh, and so those are facts that are rooted in our individual psychologies in a way that those more objective scientific things are not. Hmm. Okay, so then you're kind of separating the question of do we think it's justified and is it justified? Very much, yeah, yeah. There's kind of a quite a big appeal to authority, I guess, is is the missing piece that connects the two to a certain degree. I mean, are, are we justified links to, is it justified because, you know, we, we trust certain experts on an issue who maybe have a bigger grasp of a topic and can tell us whether it is objectively justified. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's right. So then how do I, how do, how do we then as individual epistemic agents, I mean, so suppose these theories are great. What does that do? I mean, so some theories are great. Some theories are terrible. Uh, what do we as individual epistemic agents do? That becomes then an issue of applied epistemology, which I haven't even tried to address here. Uh, right. So how is it that we decide which ones are which? Um, well, yeah, it's going to involve the kinds of things that you said. It's going to involve sorting out who the relevant experts are. It's going to uh, require sorting out what the actual experts actually believe and so on. Let me give us kind of a summary uh, of what I've been saying. So we've got the idea that a justified belief is one that's likely to be true. We've got two different branching options, right? So we can understand probability in terms of, on the one hand, subjective versus objective probabilities. And that's a choice point that you have to make. And then you also have a choice point whether you're going to understand probabilities, whether you've done it subjectively or objectively, although I'm more interested in the latter, whether you're going to understand probabilities as conditional on the process used, 
or to understand it as conditional on the evidence that you based it on. And I'm using this kind of a weird example, uh, this kind of counterintuitive example, to try to highlight the difference between uh, a process and an evidence epistemology. So the view that I endorse in the end is an objective process view. So we're all going to say, believe what's likely to be true. But what does that mean? Right. And so like what I've been trying to do here is to show some of the different ways that we can understand that question and we can understand that advice. Because, I mean, one of the things that I think philosophy is really good at, for better or worse, is, uh, is taking simple things and making them really complicated. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and, and I think that's because things really are complicated. Uh, I think that's because things that appear simple generally really are complicated. And I think that the sciences tell us this too, right? I mean, so this thing that looks, you know, oh, there's this table and it looks really solid and simple and like there's nothing to it. And then uh, the more science tells us about it, uh, the more weird and complicated uh, it turns out to be, and it turns out to be that it's a massive, uh, I mean, that it's a, a volume of mostly empty space full, filled uh, to the extent that anything fills it uh, with these little atoms, and these little atoms have these electrons spinning around them at great speeds, and what are electrons? Oh, wow, that gets really weird and really complicated, you know. And so philosophy does something really kind of similar. It takes these things that seem to us really, you know, pretty simple and straightforward and applicable, and then and shows that they're really not straightforward. And I think that's because the facts really are complicated, uh, because I think that reality really is complicated in these ways. Yeah, I like the way you put it, because I feel like that's something that people usually accept coming from science. But coming from philosophy, people tend to say, oh, you're just overcomplicating things. But I think it's, when you put it that way, it's very legitimate. You know, things are quite complicated. We're just looking at them better in philosophy. Yeah, I think people sometimes hate this about philosophy, right? So I don't know if you've noticed this, but I always used to notice, right? Philosophy students were generally not just kind of neutral and meh about philosophy, right? There's a bimodal distribution. They tended to love it or hate it. You know, I mean, a lot of people would get really obsessed one way or the other. And I, and I think that that complication is a thing that people hate. And they think, oh, you're just arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And I think, yeah, some, some philosophy debates really are dumb. Uh, I mean, they really, you know, I mean, I think some, some are kind of worthless in the way that people think. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they are. Yeah, I definitely float between. I'm kind of in a superposition of love. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. Still, I feel like I could keep talking and asking questions indefinitely. But um, thanks for uh, speaking to us as long as you have. Thank you for listening to Thoughts Philosophy Untangled. Find our other episodes wherever good podcasts are streamed. And for host information and our social media links, please go to www.thoughtsuofg.com.